0: Next chapter podcasts.
1: I probably listened to this song right here at least fifty-seven times. Have all eventually come down to waiting for every man? God, it's good. It's for every man by Jackson Brown off his nineteen seventy-three album of the same name. It's also number 450 out of 500 on the Spotify original, The 500 with Josh Adam Myers. What is up, you Kadoogles? God, I love you guys. Please tell me you listen to this record because this one got into my soul. If you're new to the podcast, guess what we're doing? We're going through Rolling Stone Magazine's list of the 500 greatest albums. And we're at 450. Dude, we're almost at a year. That is insane insane. Just want to thank Spotify. I love you guys so much. Thank you for helping us get the word out to more people. And thank you to everybody, all the Fleece Army that are doing Instagram stories. I love seeing those pop up. I love when you ask for me to give you the ranking. I love that. And I do, there's like a million Secretary of Interiors out there, and I'm sorry. But most of you are like sergeants. If, if you do a lot of posting, you're a fucking general. A hundred percent. I, of course, am the emperor. Do an Instagram story. Take a screenshot of how you're listening to The 500. And tag me at Josh Adam Myers. Put a hashtag, The 500 Podcast. And go ahead and throw on hashtag Fly Sammy. God, I wish I was Australian. Right, so you guys want to get into the new show today. Right. Released on October 1973. No, all right. This is a great record, so I'm going to give it the respect it deserves. All right. Released in October of 73 on Asylum Records, For Every Man was the second album by American singer-songwriter Jackson Brown who has come to typify Los Angeles' singer-songwriter and soft rock boom of the early 70s along with many of his contemporaries like Carole King James Taylor and Warren Zevon. For Every Man featured so many guest artists it was literally like one of our guest movies. There was Don Henley Glenn Frey Joni Mitchell, David Crosby, Bonnie Raitt, Elton John was on it, named like Jimbo Slim because he couldn't get a visa. This was also the first Brown album with multi-instrumentalist David Lindley, who would play with Jackson for the rest of the decade. Although everybody thinks Jackson Brown is from Los Angeles, he's actually from Heidelberg, Germany, where his father was stationed while working for a military newspaper. They moved to Highland Park when he was three. In fact, they moved into a house his grandfather had built, the Abbey San Encino, which is featured on the cover of this album. And at 12, the family moved to Fullerton in Orange County. Now, while he was still in high school, Jackson would play music. He would play local folk clubs like the Troubadour and Ash Grove. After high school, he briefly joined the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band, and then he moved to New York to become a staff songwriter for Elektra Records Publishing Department, all before the dude was 18 years old. Now, while in New York, he was romantically linked to the German singer Nico, who had just left the band, The Velvet Underground, and he then went on to help her work on her new record, Chelsea Girl. After their breakup in 1968, he returned to Los Angeles and put a little folk band together. Meanwhile, and without a record contract of his own, his songs were being recorded by The Birds, Joan Baez, The Eagles, Linda Ronstadt, and a whole bunch of others. After signing with his new manager, David Geffen, you all know David Geffen, he released his debut, Jackson Brown, in 1972. People went apeshit. Critics loved it. Audiences loved it. It's a great record, so I've been told. A year later, this album came out, which leans slightly on some older songs he had already had recorded by other artists. While it only peaked at number 43 on the Billboard 200, it was certified platinum by 1989 and is the first of three Jackson Brown albums on the 500. Now, sometimes you get a guest, and other times you get a guest. Today, I have the one and only Judd Apatow. Judd's the man behind 40-Year-Old Virgin, Knocked Up, Funny People, HBO's Crashing. Probably one of my favorite documentaries I've seen in the last few years, The Zen Diaries of Gary Shandling on HBO. Also, uh, Judd has a new book out about that. If you're a fan of Gary Shandling, Judd wrote an intimate book about his mentorship from Gary Shandling. He gathered journal entries, photographs, and essays uh, for a close-up look into Gary Shandling's life and the man that he was. And it's incredible. Comes out November 12th, but you can pre-order it now at Amazon and BarnesandNoble.com. Also, currently on HBO, he has The Great Depression by Gary Goldman. It's hysterical. Stream it. It's incredible. It was so much fun to be able to sit down and talk to Judd because he's a true fan, man. And I love when I get to sit down with a true fan. I knew for some reason I knew there was like a feeling that was just like we had a guest cancel. And I was like, just text him. Just text Judd. Something was telling me to text Judd. And I did. And he was available. And I can't thank him enough. Rate, review, and most importantly, subscribe to The 500. And listen free on Spotify or anywhere you get your pods. Follow me at Josh Adam Myers on all social media. Email the podcast to tell us how much you love it or how much you hate it at 500 podcast at gmail.com and for all things 500, go to our website the 500podcast.com. Well, nothing left to say but here we go with number 450 out of 500 with for every man by Jackson Brown. Judd Apatow, Judd Apatow, Judd. How does it feel to be like the most famous Judd? There's not a lot of competition. Nelson, there's Nelson. There's Hirsch. Ashley, there's a kid
0: from the Real World, San Francisco. <laughs> Wait, was there? There was, but. Here's the thing. That was my favorite season. How do I not know that? I, here's why I feel bad, because I've been in the public eye for a few decades now, and you would think, just off of how much people enjoy me, that, that the name Judd would have exploded in, in all the preschools, <laughs> and I have a daughter who's 21 and one who's 17, and there is not a Judd to be seen anywhere. There's not one Judd in the entire school, <laughs> and that means people hate that name. They hate that name. I think even Jews hear that name and go too Jewish.
1: (laughs) Well, tell me about this. Like, cause I threw the hail Mary to you about if you were a fan of Jackson Brown and you immediately were like, yes, I love Jackson. Tell me about how you got into Jackson Brown. My earliest memories of Jackson Brown
0: are my mom loving Jackson Brown. So I'm not sure what year the live album came out, Running on Empty, which was always a fascinating album because you heard he recorded the entire album on the road, either on stage or in the hotel room or on the bus. And it was done with mobile recording equipment. So it was very alive and intimate. And I love that record. And then my family would play all of the Jackson Brown records up until that time. But there were a few people that my mom was really into, and you know the Cars. I remember my mom playing the first album Do by your the mom Cars. Is hip, bro, yeah, she was really. Uh, my parents were
1: just playing uh, klezmer music. <laughs> <laughs> it's just.
0: Well, my grandfather was a producer, and he produced. Mainly jazz and blues. He did Sarah Vaughan and Dinah Washington and Dizzy Gillespie. Oh, wow. But he also produced the first Janis Joplin album, Big Brother and the Holding Company, back in, I think it was 67 or 68. And he also produced a bunch of the first Ted Nugent and the Amboy Dukes records. Wow. In the late 60s. So music was a big part of our family. They owned yeah. a record label, Mainstream Records, which is still out now. They, they put out all of these great retrospectives of all of the music that my grandfather, Bobby Shad, produced. And a lot of it is this really wild jazz fusion and old school jazz and, and experimental music. He put out a John Cage record. He, he was really an incredible guy. And so music was at the center of our home. And there were a few people that my family loved. They loved Cream. In my house, people, all they ever said was, Cream was the best band of all. Above the Beatles, above everybody. For some reason, my parents always talked about Cream.
1: Some people just are just obsessed with Cream. Yeah, so I get that. So then how did Jackson, just your mom's listening to it, your dad, if it's just in the household?
0: Yeah, my brother was into it. You know, we were in the car a lot. There was a lot of cassettes happening. And I think when I was very young, it was one of the first records That I, you know, back in the old days, before uh, the computers, you would just sit in your room and stare at the wall and listen to a record from beginning to end. I did that, I did that. And and read the lyrics, (laughs) and you'd absorb... The ideas and the feelings and the sound of a record in in a way that I'm not sure kids do uh, no, at this point.
1: No way they're doing that anymore. No way. I mean, they get maybe their one single. We were talking about that a while ago where it's like like you can be proud of your record collection. You can be proud of your CD collection. Sure. Can you be proud of an iTunes library? Do you know no, what I you Or your save songs on Spotify.
0: No, because it's every song in the world. It's almost too much because anytime you listen to music now, Some part of your brain is saying, but you could be
1: listening to these other one million songs (laughs) You're you're inside my head right now because I cannot like as soon as I put something on, like I've had to get to the point where I put my phone in my glove box because I just constantly want to change the song. And I, I
0: didn't have that experience as a kid. I would sit in my room. And put on an album by like Chicago. I mean, in my head, I was in the room, you know, with Chicago oh, yeah. and all these people. And I think that Jackson Brown was someone that I related to in some way. I liked how he expressed his feelings. Yeah. And I I always say to people, I'm not like a Radiohead guy. I'm a Jackson Brown guy. I I, I like, you know, people like Loudon Wainwright III and Warren Zevon and. And, you know, the types of singer-songwriters who who tell you directly what they're feeling, and there's poetry in it, but as a young person, I could understand it. And so when he sang about the roadies, I, I was transported to being on the road and that lifestyle, and... Uh, And cocaine. I remember listening to cocaine as a kid. Going, what is this? Like when you're like nine. Mom,
1: Dad, what is cocaine? Be quiet, John.
0: And I remember uh, the song Rosie. Uh, You know, songs like that. uh, You know, they were so beautiful. And you know, I he was probably one of the first people I liked who was really good. You know, you know, you listen to all sorts of stuff when you're a little kid, and then there's someone who's actually brilliant and you and you're proud of yourself for getting it as a little kid and then it just stayed with me my entire life he's just an artist yeah that I've always enjoyed and now you know I, I do these benefits at Largo's at Largo in Los Angeles once a month at this great theater and every year we do a tribute to Warren Zevon and Jackson Brown puts it together and gets a lot of the musicians like Waddy Wachtel who, who played with Warren Zevon and other people uh, to just do covers of his song so that's actually one of the great—I
1: mean, that's incredible—full yeah.
0: circle experiences of my life is to get to put on this show every year
1: with you, Jackson. You know Brown. what's funny? So I—I I really I knew a few songs by Jackson Brown prior to this. Uh, Doctor My Eyes, you know uh, the song from Fast Times. Like I, the, uh, that's the stuff I knew. I knew only hits. And I'm friends with the the bass player Toll Wilkenfeld. Yes, yes, and and she's so brilliant. And so I've hung out with Jackson a few times, and always just been like, oh, it's just Jackson. He's a cool guy. And then finally, I think she was having a party recently, and they the her band got Jackson to sit in and play Doctor My Eyes, and <laughs> I, and then I sang with him on it, and it's like what are the greatest moments of my life to have him cut? We go back, we get, we leave the recording area wherever the, uh, we were jamming. And he says to me, he goes, you are a monster. Oh my <laughs> God, your voice. And it's like, and, and that's the thing is that like, I'm almost glad I listened to this record after that, because I don't know, like if I could have handled that or, or just, <laughs> it was just so it's just like listening to this record. Like I can see why, so many people are influenced by him and and cite him as one of their early influences and that maybe that even got them into music or even storytelling because that's what he is I mean every one of these songs is basically a story of of a certain aspect of his you know life at the time.
0: I think it also made me interested in the whole idea of people telling personal stories in their art yeah and I didn't know what that was a, a, until I got to be, whatever eight, nine, ten years old. The first time you would hear something and go, "Oh my God, someone's telling me the truth." Yeah, this is real to them. This is their life, and I've always been interested in that above all things. That was, you know, why I, I've been so obsessed with Gary Shanling's work, both as someone who mentored me, but just as a a viewer of it. Is he is mining his soul to tell his stories, and so t- to me, there's a connection between Gary. And, and Jackson Brown, because they are trying to share with you what their experience as human being is. Sure. So I, after doing the documentary about Gary Shandling, I had all of his stuff, his journals, his photos, all of his writings. And so I decided to make a book, which is both a scrapbook and a biography of Gary, a biography told through all of the interviews I did for the documentary, but most of them are really expanded. So we created this book called It's Gary Shandling's Book, which you can pre-order now. It comes out in November, but you can go to Amazon or somewhere. And uh, if you were inspired by anything in the documentary, the book has all the journals and all of these quotes about his his life and his art that I find really inspiring to me. And the one I always quote is this thing I I found. It's just in the middle of a random journal page. It said, uh, maybe your comedy is a gift to be given to help people through this difficult life with yeah. no expectation of getting anything in return. Yeah. And I, I think that's you know, the best version of artistic expression.
1: All right, let's dive into our record. Yes. All right, so our album is number 450 out of 500. It's the second studio album for every man by Jackson Brown released October 1973 produced By Jackson himself. So tell me about... uh, I was five. I was five five at that time. Okay.
0: About to turn six. Very excited about turning six. That's all I could say about 1973. (laughs) (laughs) So
1: do you remember, like, first hearing this record?
0: I think this was a record that uh, was bought in my home after Running on Empty came out. I think the family went and bought the whole back catalog. Yeah. And, you know, this... This is an album I can put on and listen to the whole thing wall to wall every day for months and years. There's something about it that just puts me in a good place, just the just sonically, the vibe oh, of the 100%.
1: album. 100%. I I mean, it's, since I've I've been I've been digging into this probably for the last week and just driving like and listening to it, like I'm calmer. I'm not, you know, I'm not flicking people off. I'm not like <laughs> I'm not getting mad about stuff. I mean, it's just it's a very relaxing journey into what i think is like you know i'm not going to say a quintessential album in the 1970s but definitely one that i mean not only stays in that era but it's like you get the feel of what it was like in california at that time it's just that sound um let's let's get into the first song okay cuz this is this one kind of took me by surprise all right uh peter play the first verse for me
0: well,
1: So immediately when I heard this, I was like, wait a second. This, there's no fucking way. This is, this this is an Eagles song. Like that's, (laughs) a! I had no idea. This is the first single released by the Eagles in 1972, but it was originally written by Jackson with the help of Glenn Frey from the Eagles. I, I was completely dumbfounded. I could not, I was like in shock. I was like, did the Eagles steal this from Jackson? Who would do that to him? Uh, so, so Jackson lived in a duplex under Fry and his roommate, uh, the singer songwriter J.D. Souther. Frey would hear Jackson working on this for his debut album in 1971, but it wasn't finished in time. So he encouraged Jackson to let him finish it with his help for the Eagles debut. Now, now here's the the fucked up part. The Eagles version went to number 12 on the Billboard charts. Uh, this song didn't even chart for Jackson. Was it a single? It was, it was his, this was the first single that he, well, no, it was, it says this is his second single uh, from this album, which kind of, I felt was
0: a little fucked up. My- too soon, too soon, Jackson, not good, not good, uh, <laughs> not good uh, marketing right there to go straight to it. What's up, everybody? I am Finn McKenty, host of the Punk Rock NBA podcast, part of the Sound Talent Media podcast network. My podcast is all about doing what you love for a living. And every week, I sit down and talk to people who have done exactly that. For example, musicians
1: like Tommy from Between the Buried Me, Matt from Periphery, Lil Lotus and Shinigami, among many others, photographers, artists, designers, YouTubers like Glenn Fricker
0: and Sarah Dietschy. And I unpack exactly how they got to where they are today with the goal of helping you do the same. So if that sounds cool, you can listen and subscribe at soundtalentmedia.com and I'll see you there Here's the thing that I always think about when I hear stories like that. I do equate it with comedians. The idea that Jackson Brown was living in an apartment above uh, Glenn Fry and J.D. Souther, is that how you pronounce it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, Who also wrote a lot of of great songs for the Eagles and, and for his solo albums, uh, it's like being a comic. When I was a comic, I lived with Adam Sandler and David Spade lived across the street, and Rob Schneider lived down the street. And, oh wow! And so I love that before any of those guys had done anything, they were just like us—just guys living in crappy apartments, looking for a break. But instead of going to the improv or the comedy store, they were, you know, going to the Troubadour, some some place like yeah. that, you know, trying to get noticed. And that they they were writing these songs, which became legendary songs, but at the time they had nothing they're just sitting in their apartment and and glenn fry's listening to jackson try to finish this song and he can't finish it and he's like dude i probably could finish that and he like (laughs) writes a verse or two (laughs) and then suddenly it's like one of the most successful songs of all time oh for sure
1: but you you mentioned something that that i also found to be to be not just interesting but just awesome so you mentioned you lived with adam sandler now you guys were just a couple of jewish freaks having fun, trying to start your careers. Did you guys have a project you were working on before you both blew up that no one knows about? No. <laughs> we didn't. I mean, I, I,
0: we didn't really know what to do. And Adam, you know, he was working at MTV a lot. He was doing uh, funny characters on this game show, Remote Control, and doing some VJing. That, yeah. And... And it wasn't like the whole thing was exploding. And then one day he had an audition for Lauren Michaels, at the Chicago Improv. And then Adam's gone. I'm living alone. And Adam kept paying his rent for kind of a long time. Oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. <laughs> I mean, he never got rid of the apartment. until so finally, I'm like, Adam, this is just sad. I'm just alone in this apartment. And your M.G. room is a reminder of my failure. (laughs) (laughs) So, And he left all his stuff. Like when Adam left, I have his stuff still. I have like a box with like his driver's license and his Yankees jacket. (laughs) He just disappeared. Uh, But no, we didn't have any plan. I I, I was just trying to get better at stand-up and writing jokes for other comedians. Uh, I was just beginning to make a little money writing jokes for Roseanne and Tom and people like that. And then he was suddenly on TV every
1: week. Did you know like immediately when you first started, when you first saw him perform, you're like, oh, yeah, this guy is 100 percent going to be just, you know, exactly whatever he's going to try to do. He's going to do.
0: Yes. And that was the feeling that everybody had about Adam, about Adam. And I don't think I've ever seen it since where there's a person and it's not like he's murdering with a no. stand-up at the time he was very hit and miss i mean if you loved him everything about it cracked you up sure but he wasn't like a super crowd favorite as a stand-up at that time he was very experimental and weird and we loved him and we all just thought this is th- i think this is the guy <laughs> and then everything he's done is exactly what we all thought would happen and, and it wasn't will it happen it was always how will it happen
1: sure Take it easy Then fades right into the next song uh, Our Lady of the Well This might be one of my favorite songs On this record Peter, uh, play the chorus for me, buddy. It's a long way that I have gone Across the sand to find This is reminiscent of the New Testament Bible story of Jesus meeting the Samaritan woman by the well and asking for a drink. It's the first of two songs in a row that mention Maria, uh, a derivation of Mary, Jesus' mother. So it has sort of like a biblical sound to it. It also may be about someone who may have left their country, perhaps like America from Mexico, and found love in a new one. Uh, One of my favorite songs on the record um, good uh, but I think it's this is when I think the album really starts to pick up uh, it then goes into Colors of the Sun Peter go ahead and play a little bit of that for me voices
0: in the air sympathetic harmony
1: coming from the tree So this song is so relaxed and heavy at the same time. I think you might have used this word uh, It's the only way to explain the sound is lush. Mm-hmm. Uh, this ballad ruminates about aging, growing, and whether one can plan their life. Uh, I think one of the coolest parts is when Jackson harmonizes with Don Henley from the Eagles. They hold this long note uh, on the word time. Peter, do you have that? Fall
0: behind their little- It's certainly a song that touches you very deeply. And this album was made in 1973. So you feel the end of the 60s in a lot of the songs that, you know, it is about people who are trying to figure out what they want to do with their lives. And there's certainly a disillusionment with how the 60s went. Yeah. You know, in 1973, we're in the beginning of uh, the end of Nixon and all of that. And I'm sure people we're wondering you know what 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 happened in the 60s we had this dream that everything would get better and it didn't quite work yeah and now do we want to put our time into that do we want to put our time into just ourselves and our self-improvement and living a happy life and i feel like those themes
1: are throughout the record completely but i uh, but still it's a, it's about it's about aging now one of the things since i since i've gotten to know you is You have this like young soul, you're, you're a big kid and you have this energy where I still see like elements of like childhood in it in a very respectable way. I'm saying that, but with all the incredible things that you've done, how do you stay in the moment?
0: Well, obviously, I'm obsessed with aging as well, because I have two movies with the number 40 in them. Yeah, I'm, I'll be 40 <laughs> next month. So so, so clearly, I'm I'm uh, running a long midlife crisis <laughs> up until I make This is 50. <laughs> and I'm 51. I'm about to turn 52. And what's weird for me is I was always the young guy. Like, I was the kid. Yeah. I started doing stand-up when I was uh, 17 years old. I was the young kid in the clubs. I was writing jokes for people when I was a kid. I was doing the Ben Stiller show when I was 23 years old, 24 years old. And that's always how I felt. I was always embarrassed that I was younger than everybody else. So it's a little odd for me to be this age because I I really do feel exactly the same as I did in my early 20s. That's what I like about returning to stand-up is – it, it does feel like the thing a kid would do to get in the clubs and compete with everyone else and try to be as as sure. great as everybody yeah, else. Uh, it, it it definitely is a reinvigorating experience. But I do think comedy keeps you young because everything you do in comedy is an experiment and all of it can fail. There's no, nothing about your success means the next joke or the next movie will work. And that's scary as shit, but it's also the thing that keeps you on your toes and keeps you excited because
1: you could fail at any moment. It's 100%. Uh, here, I want to give you... A, do you need a crystal to hold right now or anything? <laughs> All right, well, this, this, this seems to be like a theme throughout this whole record, because the next song uh, is uh, has another thing about uh, about childhood. I think he says child or children are a form of that in this album at least 100 times. Uh, I thought I was a child. Now, I like this song... Because it kind of has this Billy Joel feel to it. Also, as soon as the drums kick in, it becomes what I think is the most 1970s song of all time. Peter, go ahead and play a little bit of it for me. Spent my whole life running around Chasing songs from town to town Now the child is a child and <laughs> we are children The kids are children and my children having kids But one thing is for sure I'm a child. Guitar break. Uh, David Lindley, go. (laughs) So this seems to be about how falling in love can make you grow up, whether you care to or not. Yes, this Uh, is the
0: inspiration for Knocked Up. Really? This song is exactly Knocked Up. Sometimes when I make a movie, I'll work on it for years, right? So a movie will take two to five years to make, and then I'll hear a song and go, everything I was going for in that movie This person expressed in three three and a half minutes. Yeah, and and they and they do, and that's what this song is about. It's about thinking you're a kid, thinking you're allowed to be immature and be in this space. And you look at someone and you fall in love, and it's over. And now you're scared. You're scared for how long you'll live, for their safety, for your health to, for their happiness. And that's it's like when you have a child. You have the same feeling. Yeah. You're both so excited, but now you're terrified that this thing I can that you created yeah. is safe or not. Um, like this line, I thought that I was free, but I'm just one more prisoner of time. And that's uh, you know that's part of growing up. And I think most everything I've done is a coming-of-age oh, yeah. story. In fact, I the first thing I ever wrote, I wrote a spec episode of The Simpsons. So the first year The Simpsons was on the air in the early 90s, I just wrote one as a sample to try to get other people to give me work. The Simpsons did not request it. It was just <laughs> to be a writing sample. And the premise of it was that Homer takes his family to see a hypnotist, like a funny comedy act hypnotist. And the hypnotist makes Homer think he's 10 years old. And then the hypnotist has a heart attack. Wait, then- isn't this... this? Is- well, well, okay, okay, yeah, okay. So I'm, I'm sorry. I'm, so, I have the Simpsons tattooed yes. on my arm, Judd. So
1: I'm like, wait it. Okay, go ahead, continue. <laughs> and then,
0: so what happens in the in this the script that I wrote was that now Homer's like the same age as Bart, and they become great friends. He's not a parent anymore; they're just buddies. And then they realize it's time to wake him up from this hypnotic trance he's in. And he's sad, right? And he's sad that he wants to stay ten. He doesn't sure. want responsibility, but he also Misses his wife. Yeah, of course. And she misses him. So then a couple of years ago, I mentioned this script on stage at a panel. And Al Jean, who's a friend of mine, he was at The Simpsons when I wrote it originally in the early 90s. He called me after reading an article that recapped that story. And he said, hey, we'll we'll make it now. And then The Simpsons punched it up, which means they changed changed, everything and made it genius. (laughs) And they, Harvard they, writers like,
1: all right, Judd, let's get rid of Act Two, and they Fucking...
0: made a, ver- a version of that early Simpsons type of story, hundred percent, and they and it really is a, is a great one. And I got to watch them do the table read, and I watched them record it. Everything was a full circle dream come true. But the joke I made when I told the story at the panel was that everything I've ever written is the exact same story as that Simpsons episode. It's all people being forced into adulthood, which is part of, I thought I was a child.
1: But also, there's something I was thinking about, I was talking to Avery, uh, who who helps me work on this show, uh, who you know, and he had mentioned something that was very mature for someone at a young age to do. Uh, So in high school, you worked for your high school radio station, and you ended up getting some pretty impressive celebrity interviews. How did you get the balls to call up these agencies and ask for interviews with, with like, these huge celebrities when you're just some schmendrick from Long Island? Well, when I was about 15, me and my friend Josh Rosenthal worked at our high school radio station,
0: WKWZ in Syosset. WKWZ! <laughs> and the first thing we learned was, if we called places and said we were from a radio station, they would give us free tickets. So we got tickets to see Ray Charles... With the Commodores. Oh, oh my God. <laughs> and, and we went. And we're like, oh, my God, that, what a scam. <laughs> we just got free tickets. And then, you know, you get free records. What, what can you get free? And then my friend Josh started interviewing people. And he interviewed, like, Susie and the Banshees. And then he interviewed R.E.M. in 1983. And one day he said, you should interview comedians. And then I hunted down Steve Allen. Oh, <laughs> I interviewed wow. Steve Allen, put out an album of Phony Phone Calls that he did with celebrities one was jerry lewis calling a deli and and uh (laughs) and, uh, and making fun of the deli and so i just thought wow what a great way to get in the room with my heroes and to ask them you know how do you do it and so i did about 50
1: of those interviews when i was a kid all right Uh, The next song on this record is actually one of the few songs on this album uh, that I heard before I dug into this, uh, because it came up randomly on my Spotify, like, music you should know thing. It's these days. Now, uh, I think the song is perfect, hence why I saved it before uh, I dug into the record. I love the lyrics, I love the melody, and I love this minute 30 long guitar solo ending. So Jackson wrote this when he was 16, and he called it, I've Been Out Walking. While first recorded by Nico for her debut album in 1967, it was Greg Allman's arrangement for his 1973 version that Jackson emulated for this recording. And this is also a song about remembrance and regret. The last lines are already heavy, but when you remember how young he was when he wrote this part, you can really hear the depth in it. Uh, Peter play minute three. That's a 16 year old writing something with that much depth to it. It
0: may, it literally makes you believe in God. It makes you believe that there's a universal intelligence and that when people are creative, they're somehow tapping into something in the universe. Because how does a 16-year-old write, don't confront me with my failures, I had not forgotten them. Yeah. It is, I mean, it's so powerful. This song, I have to say, is in probably my top 10 of favorite songs of all time. I go back to this song constantly. There's a great Paul Westerberg version of this song oh, wow. as well and in my darker times you know early in in life when i was uh, between girlfriends or coming out of a terrible breakup this is just one of the great get depressed and cry alone in your closet oh yeah songs um mine's vincent by don mclean oh yeah that's my
1: that's my weep
0: uh, i uh, i hosted a benefit last year and Ed Sheeran and Don McLean sang it together at the benefit. But I love this line. Now, if I seem to be afraid to live the life I have made in song, well it's just that I've been losing so long. First of all, every sixteen year old feels that way. As if yeah. as if, you know, you do feel that way. <laughs> and I know that from having a 17-year-old and a 21-year-old that in those teenage years, you do feel like Man, this is painful and it's been going on for a long time. Yeah. It's, it's hard to find the energy to go forward in life and believe in yourself again to go after your dream and feel good about yourself. It's just such a beautiful song. The Nico version is I never heard it. Incredible, and so is the Greg Allman one, but I, I I like his. I'm assuming the best. it his
1: is his is better because the, like I listen to the Eagles Take It Easy, not nearly as good as Jackson's. Um, let's talk about remakes for a second. So uh, Jackson Brown did a few remakes. He did this song. Stay. If you could remake any movie or TV show, anything, we're talking Chinatown, Godfather, Night Court, whatever. What are you remaking? Is there something? Well, I'm so not the remake. I know, guy. but that's I've why been, I wanted to ask.
0: I mean, I've been asked about it in the past and I've always said no, mainly because if something is good and it, it exists, I'm always like, well, what am I trying to do? like match this piece of greatness, I'm not going to surpass it. So what is, what is the point of it? And also when it's not from me and when it's not my idea, it's hard for me to get excited. But that being said, (laughs) I'll do Godfather too. I'll put that together. I'll call up some friends, see what Paul Rudd's up to.
1: Get Seth on the
0: phone and who's yeah?
1: Wait, all right. Who's playing? Who's playing the Pacino character? That's guy. Is that Rudd? Is Rudd the Pacino? That's uh, Martin Starrs. Pacino. Uh, the De Niro is uh,
0: Pete Holmes. Uh, you know, Diane Keaton. Is if you do Leslie. a flash,
1: if you do a flashback at like the Abe Vigoda scene or anything yes. like that, like I want to be the Abe Vigoda character. Let me just be abe Vagoda.
0: seth is lee strasberg
1: in cuba can we please make this movie this would be the grand, I mean, way better than godfather 3 i'll tell you that much hey this is chris swinney formerly of the ataris and currently host of that one time on tour part of the sound talent media
0: podcast
1: network All right, that goes into Redneck Friend. All right, so this was the first single from this album, and it doesn't sound anything like the rest of the record, but fuck is it fantastic. Uh, This was a song that made me a Jackson Brown fan. And the David Lindley guitar line on this is, remarkable what's just so different than anything that's on the record i mean this is we've been listening to what what you know you would call singer-songwriter heartfelt and then you have this up-tempo honky-tonk rocking little song uh peter do you have anybody do you have a little bit up for me can you play some (laughs) All right, so this song has guest appearances by Glenn Frey on harmony, and I don't know if you knew this. Elton John is playing piano on this, amazing, under the pseudonym Rockaday Johnny because he couldn't get a work visa. Uh, f- this is this is. I was in a discussion with my with one of my writers, Morty, and we were because I love this song. He he made a point uh, for a record with such depth and introspection. This could have been an attempt. To pander to like the rock and roll radio or maybe the concert scene. I mean, not, I don't know if this album needed this song. Do you know what I mean? Well, yes. There's
0: a high probability that someone on the team or at the record label is like, what's a single? We need a single. Yeah, and uh, they
1: were worried about... That's a really good record exec, by the way. They worried about,
0: you know, uh, the times you've come being the single or whatever. Yeah. And uh, they said, you know, let's do a barn burner. But that being said, we all need a barn burner. hundred percent.
1: This, I'm telling you, like, (laughs) I dug the record, but on the first pass, this was the one that really, really stuck out to me because, like I said, it was so different. Uh, It's not my favorite song on the record, but I definitely, if you're putting this on at a party and you're playing that other shit, like, you know... This is the one that people would be like, yeah. Let's just replay uh, track six more. You're kind of bumming us out with these children music songs. It's a different party, Defe- definitely different party. So, uh, this song is allegedly about his penis and masturbation. I think uh, he has
0: a few songs that you find out later. You know that they're really heartwarming, and then someone's like,
1: <laughs> "I think that's about his dick." It's <laughs> about his dick, dude. <laughs> but in a theme of of coming of age. That comes up a lot in your movies, mm-hmm. uh, especially. And there's a lot of dick jokes. What is so funny about dicks? Like, why does everyone love dick jokes? You know, the other day I was
0: showing my daughter Maude Funny People. She's in Funny People, but a weird hostile joke in my home is that Maude refuses to watch Funny People. She just decided that it bothers me that she's never watched it, and so she makes a point of <laughs> never watch watching it. it. Yeah, yeah. And every time I'm with her, I just will just you know quietly put it on when we're on the couch <laughs> and, and she'll always find a way to leave she's like ah, nope, get turn it off <laughs> but there's a sequence in it where where uh Adam Sandler's character George Simmons is doing a corporate gig with James Taylor and Seth Rogen is there with him and when Adam is on stage Seth is with James Taylor and he says you ever get bored of singing those same songs and James Taylor goes you ever get tired of talking about your dick? <laughs> and I think that says it all. It's uh, This is what we do. This is part of, you know, just like every album needs a redneck friend, every
1: movie, every needs, movie a needs a, a dick, dick joke.
0: joke. You know, it's part of it.
1: Uh, speaking of funny people, that was one of my first jobs in stand-up comedy was being, I was an extra the day that you shot at the Hollywood Improv oh, wow. uh, with, if I'm not mistaken, Kyle Kinane, um monty hoffman yes and um and then the one and only the late great uh, brody stevens and that was probably russell,
0: russell brand was there too that night was he
1: yes i just remember the craft service was a little weak dude in for the extras it was i could have gone for some you know more than just almonds maybe you know what almonds are healthy you have to look back <laughs>
0: and go if it was m&ms would that have been kinder or a, a solid protein almond? i was a starving comic judd <laughs> and what do you remember of that night?
1: Um, well, we didn't really, it was me actually funny. Uh, it was me, Angelo Bowers, my friend that had passed away a couple years uh, later, uh, Rel battle and Gerard Carmichael. Wow. And we, cause we were like, that was our group. And honestly, we never made it into the showroom. <laughs> we hung out behind the improv or like right on, uh, whatever that street is in between the Fred Siegel. And we just talked to people and had the best time ever and made, Whatever the rate was Which we needed Like I yes. needed that money so bad And then we came back And we did it the next day And we still never went in um, Because they didn't need you Or you didn't want to We just We were having You know what it's yeah. like you know, The way you talked about How comics yeah. Kicking it in your apartment just, just, just having fun And like that's That's why I'm a comic It's not so much to, It's just the It's hanging out at the yes. comedy store That's what I love More than anything I love performing But it's connecting with all of you Yes. And uh, and then, like I said, the, the craft service was great. That sounds and- like a good hang. Now, Brody Stevens
0: hosted that night. And, you know, we never knew what we would need for the movie. So we shot a lot of stand-up at different places. And we would always hire a host and do a, a whole show. And we're shooting all the shows with the greatest cinematographer in the world, Janish Kaminski. So every time we did a show, we were like, well, maybe we'll... Is that Schindler's List? Is eat- yes. yes I- and everything Spielberg's done for the last 20, 20... Five years then that must that must still blow your mind oh in- incredible and I'm like oh my god I can shoot <laughs> Brody Stevens with Janusz Kaminski and and so at the end of it we put together an HBO special where we took a lot of people's uh, acts from different nights of taping and made an HBO special out of it but Brody Stevens wasn't in the movie and one of his running gags was he would always cre- his credit was always cut out of funny people. cut out of funny people yeah and but the way we used the improv was for just this moment where Adam sang this song, which was a uh, fuck George Simmons, and he he sang this very sad song about being a celebrity. And Adam improvised it, and it was really haunting and weird, and it was part of a very long uh improvisatory set. And one of the assistant editors was like, I think you could use this entire weird thing, he sang. Uh and and so we didn't use any anything else but when when brody died i went through the office and i said do we have the footage of brody and i found the dailies of brody that, that night yeah and i edited it together and i showed it on conan and he was amazing he was so funny it's such a and it's a beautiful yeah you know piece of footage from janish kaminsky but brody was so on his game and hilarious so uh We showed that at the memorial. Yeah, I remember. And I was so happy it existed. That's so great.
1: All right. Uh, And now back to our regularly scheduled programming of guitar picking, thinking about life, and sadness. The times you've come. So this is gorgeous. And Bonnie Raitt sounds amazing on the harmony. And when I found out it was Bonnie Raitt, I was like, "You have a very similar thing with Jackson with your with because the cameos in this are so incredible. It's like there, Sarah Silverman. Yeah, exactly. It's like having it's, it's like part of the group. It's oh, like, let's it's like ask M&M popping up for a second. <laughs> so this sounds like a ballad about hooking up with an ex, uh, where all the feelings get brought up again. Peter, uh, play a little bit of it for me, but now
0: we're lying here. So safe in the ruins of
1: our pleasure. Rafter marks the place where we have fallen. Now we're lying here so safe in the ruins of our pleasure. Who the fuck talks like that with about hooking up? Like, that is, like, the ruins of our pleasure. I've never been smart enough to write like that. (laughs) That's why everyone in everything
0: I do is dumb or stoned or in high school, because I I can't can't... write smart people. I can't even fake a smart character. I
1: I would say, so we're lying here covered in a sex sauce. Like, that's how I would put it. Maybe Uh, it's
0: about Bonnie Raitt. Ooh. Did they date? Because he says, when you went away taking all that i Built my false road on. I dropped my life and couldn't find the pieces. Now you come and go, and it's and it's hard, but I feel my strength returning. So that who is it? Is it Ronstadt?
1: Is it I don't know. Joni I don't, Mitchell. I don't know he, who he uh, dated back in the day. I don't think he dated Bonnie because I did a Bonnie record right at the beginning, and this is right around that time that she made her second album, Give It Up. So yeah, I don't think I just think he's like it's the same shit that like like I said, you're jamming with uh, with other people that are that are at the same level as you and you know that are on in your comedic circle and I think he's just pulling out you know people that just want to work with him. Maybe it is. Maybe he is fucking Bonnie. Who knows? (laughs) Um, All right, then that goes into Ready or Not. Uh, So crazy that the Fugees covered this song, right? No. All right. This is about Phyllis Major, a European model and actress that Jackson met at the Troubadour, which led to his breakup from Joni Mitchell. More specifically, it was about Phyllis being pregnant with their son, Ethan. He was admittedly too immature to keep the focus on how this big change was affecting him. So he wrote it about her trying to domesticate him. She hated the song. According to Jackson, she said, I wasn't Having a baby to get to you, and the bullshit about the washing machine is just insulting. So <laughs> fuck you. Uh, which is funny that that I read that quote because that was the one thing about the song that I didn't like. I just thought the lyrics were like a little cheese ball. You know, here, play twenty three seconds in for me, bud. Better in a crowded bar. line in the whole song is when he said, I punched an unemployed actor. <laughs> I mean, we've all been there. <laughs> we've all, he wouldn't give me his West Side Reynolds passcode. <laughs> the song's okay, nothing special. But I I love the, the idea about uh, his dream girl. So Leslie is your dream girl. And we all know you guys met on Cable Guy. Mm-hmm. But what was it that connected you two so well? And how have you kept your relationship going while working in Hollywood?
0: Well, you know, she's hilarious and beautiful and brilliant. And we've been partners, you know, as a couple and a family and in the work. And she's endlessly fascinating and interesting and uh you know, like a puzzle you can't solve in the best possible way. Like, I every day feel like I'm on a first date. Every time I go to a restaurant, I feel like when she goes to the bathroom, she's not going to come back. (laughs) (laughs) Every day I feel like she's going to come to her senses. And that that feeling has never gone away. And the funny thing about this is, again, this is like a knocked up song also. Sure. uh, Because, you know, it has a lyric, uh, nature didn't give her any warning. Now she's going to have to leave her wild ways behind. You know, that's kind of the premise of Knocked Up for Seth and Catherine. Yeah. And I may have stolen my whole career from Jackson Brown. I, I don't know. <laughs> I'm like, beginning to maybe, notice. Some maybe recurring shouldn't themes. have done this album, dude. <laughs> Does he have an album called This Is 40? I need
1: to know. <laughs> um, some other facts about this song. Uh, Jackson and Phyllis were married in December of 1975 when their son was a couple years old. But tragically, four months later, she committed suicide. Uh, after she died he stopped playing this live because she hated it years later he started playing it again but he still leaves out the parts that she didn't like out of respect for her I mean it's a good song and it's a song that I could definitely you know could see him playing live Mm -hmm. Um, now we've come to uh, which honest to God why I think this album is on the 500 greatest albums list these next two songs Uh, sing my songs to me um, one, these next two songs are perfect. It's hard to imagine a younger artist who had so many of their songs recorded before they really had a singing career. Uh, if we're taking this literally, it's Jackson asking to hear his compositions sung back to him so he can gain new insight into in perspective into what he was thinking when he wrote them. Uh, great song. Probably has my favorite part on the whole record Peter play 204 for me because it seems to me that there may never be a better chance to see who I am
0: come timelessly dancing you can make me cry right now
1: yeah oh but, it's wait wait till you get to for every man because this is just the yeah. this is just the icing um because it's also just about you know a creative life.
0: You know, trying to understand who, who you are through your, you know, artistic attempts. Yeah. You know, so, you know, when I make a movie, in a lot of ways, I'm I'm trying to solve a problem or or answer a question about myself. And sometimes I don't know what's happening while I'm making the movie. I don't know that the entire movie is, is something I need to learn or I need to remind myself. So... Even now, I just made a movie with Pete Davidson that comes out during the summer, and it's a very intimate, personal story from Pete. And like two weeks ago, I realized what it was to me because a lot of the movie is about grief and, uh, and losing a parent. And I never thought that it was about me losing my mom. And, you know, why was I interested in collaborating with Pete uh, on this movie? And I think that's part of the art, artistic process. You know what he's saying is, uh, like when he says, like, bring my dreams to me, you know, he's he's also talking about, you know, your unconscious, uh, bringing your creativity to you and all the different ways that, you know, your deepest thoughts and unconscious ideas become your your art. And that's how you learn who you are, yeah, through, through your work.
1: Of course. Um, I love this song. It also. Is the long intro to the next song, uh, because the long drum roll seamlessly uh, segues right into "For Every Man." No one does this anymore. The way they should. No, it's it's they don't. But I think that's what makes this so special. Now, now, how I said uh, that part on the last song was my favorite part of the whole album. Yes, I lied. You Play it, it, Peter. I won't even This song is perfect. It made me cry. Um, I, I've I've listened to the record probably ten to twelve times. I've listened to this song maybe forty. I, I just love it. It's like that's what I what I love about doing this podcast is when something gets into my soul, and this song just made its way in there, made a nice little nest, and. I fucking love everything about it. Uh, I love the way it builds. I, I love the, the drum thing that little like that little like I don't know what you call it like a little just that little pitter patter that builds before the ending, and it's just it's just electric. That's that's the only way I can describe this song. Uh, this is said to be an optimistic answer to the disillusioned, failed, utopian Crosby, Stills, and Nash song, Wooden Ships, which was written by David Crosby, Stephen Stills, and the Jefferson Airplane's Paul Kantner. Also, as Jackson recalled, I remember being in Glen Fry and Don Henley's apartment one night. Uh, the guy, he sounds like they're, they're Kramer almost. Cause he's like popping into their Who's place. That? This is, uh, Jackson's like popping into oh, Glenn yes. and Don's Like, guy, oh, Jackson. What the fuck is it, man? No, I just got this new thing. I'm working on get that. You got, you always got a new thing. Can we have take it easy though? Cause we like that. But he pops in uh, the guy next door was playing this grand funk railroad song. Get it together. I was thinking, get what together? That's what for every man was. It was about the expectations we had all the changes in the sixties that had burned out by 72 73. It's meant to be an expression of the search for connection with others for common purpose. Wow. I dig that.
0: Hey, this is Dewey Halpas host of peer pleasure on the sound talent media podcast network. Join me each week. As I explore another long form conversation with one of your favorite musicians, actors, comedians, or creatives. From Chino Moreno of the Deftones, John Gourley of Portugal the Man, to Fat Mike from No Effects and Ian MacKay from Fugazi and Minor Threat, we go all over the map. From Fallout Boy to Slayer, peer Pleasure has it all. Check us out now on Sound Talent Media. Um, that's funny, people. Sure. That's 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 uh not that it's uh just a Jackson Brown song, but you know the idea that you you're, you're trying to do everything for yourself, for your own ego, for your own success, and then at some point you realize that it's really about connecting with other people and loving in a selfless way, uh, and so that's why it's such a powerful song.
1: Oh, I this the second I heard this, like I was this was when I was just like, this is it, this is this is the album, this is why this album is so important. Um, so, which song is Wreck?
0: I just want to know who I stole, what song I stole from Jackson, and turned it into a motion picture. Uh, I'd like Do- to know all of them. Which is forty-year-old virgin?
1: Wait, wait, hold on. Uh, which so so? I'm trying to think of because this is I, I only know songs. This is the only album of his that I actually know like the whole thing from. Um, what would Doctor My Eyes be?
0: Doctor, that could be forty-year-old virgin. I, I just know that unconsciously it's all stolen. I'd like to apologize and. Let him know his check
1: is on the way. (laughs) All right. uh, Let's do some facts and let's get you out of here. Okay. uh, Give me some of your facts. The Facts, 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 facts. I know it's not from this record, but there's not a lot of catchy choruses on this record. They're all just mm, heartfelt and deep. All right. The house on the cover of the album is a recreation of a California mission in Highland Park, Los Angeles called Abbey San Encino. It was built as a home over 12 years, starting in 1915 by Jackson's grandfather, Clyde Brown, an eccentric painter who Jackson was named after. Jackson's family lived there from when he was three to about 12, and the house still belongs to his family. What has been passed down in your family? Wait, that house is still there? Still there. That's amazing. Uh, What
0: has been passed down in my family yeah Be- beside a uh, subtle <laughs> mental health issues <laughs> that's that's,
1: I that's uh, that was like the only joke that could cover this. it was like uh, jewish guilt <laughs>
0: i mean i'm a hoarder <laughs> indigestion i i i'm a hoarder and i want to pass everything down and i feel like the second i'm gone my my kids are going to just bring it straight to the dumpster so, I,
1: I feel like they're gonna. They're, there's a, it's, a lot of it's probably good memorabilia, you know. I think at, I think you're at a level we we can sell, like you know, the basketball you played with in middle school. You know, they don't
0: want uh, my Vincent Price autograph.
1: They I don't do. care. Can, I, can you leave that to me? Because I'll take it.
0: You know what I do have is I have, uh, you know, uh, you know something that was handed down. I have the contract that Janis Joplin and Big Brother. And the holding company signed their intent to sign a record deal with my grandfather. Oh. Uh, I have that contract. That's Rock and Roll Hall of Fame shit, dude. Yes, I have, I have that. Donate that. Sixty-six, to- I believe, is the year. Donate that to Cleveland. I'm selling
1: it <laughs> for the money. All right. Greg Allman was not just an interpreter of Jackson's songs And a collaborator But also Jackson's roommate In Los Angeles In the late what? 60s Who is this I, Greg I, Allman had a roommate I know but just I just want like a GoPro camera up there That we could have just you know Do you think they got laid Oh my god dude can you imagine Dude Jackson's good looking now And probably what his 70s Greg You Allman. know Plus now he's like even now he's sexy He doesn't use like you know plastic bottles The guy's awesome All right, so, but they were close up until Allman's passing in 2017. Now, we talked about this a little bit, uh, and we have uh, the It's Gary Shandling book. You've created this wonderful memoir for your best friend, Gary. Tell me about him. Like, what was that thing that sticks out to you the most about Gary? I
0: I think that he was very human he was he was brilliant but he, he you know he was always like struggling to figure out how to make his life work he you know he was on a search to be happy to find peace he you know he was very neurotic hysterically neurotic, neurotic. yeah and it's like angelo he, he was just on a search to try to figure figure it out and he was very willing to talk at great length about what his philosophies were so it was always funny talking to him because he he had so much to offer but at the same time you always thought i don't think this is working for you but it was on some level because he was always so neurotic and funny and sweet but yet he loved to talk about buddhism and was very helpful to me i didn't know anything about any of that until i met gary and it had a, a gigantic effect on my life and when i think about him i just think of somebody that was just riotously funny and and soul-searching, who made a choice later in life to be a mentor. And one of the things I saw in one of his journals from one of his later years, he just wrote in a journal, learn to grow old gracefully, learn to become a mentor gracefully. And I thought, wow, that was a conscious idea. He wasn't just a nice guy helping people. He thought that through. I want to be available to people to help them. And I think that's a... A beautiful thing.
1: You know, it's it's the when I hear you speak about Gary, it's like everything I've basically done since my friend Angelo Bowers has passed away has been a way to honor him because he wasn't like I he was just as neurotic probably as Gary. Um and and but he was just this loving person that was so selfless and after he died it's like all i've been doing i haven't written a book but i've but i thought about it i don't even know if there's enough stuff to do that but this podcast is because of Angelo, like he loved Rolling Stone magazine, and would always talk. We'd always talk about this list, and and it's like this is my way of kind of keeping his spirit alive. Uh, so when I find a song like "For Every Man," it's like I feel like I'm there with Ange, and I think that's why so many albums on this list have have brought me to tears. Um, so I can completely understand. Uh, Angelo didn't help anybody though. He was uh he was a Holocaust denier, and, and he was evil. <laughs> Uh, All right. In 2004, Jackson Brown was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, although to me he received a bigger honor a year earlier when he appeared in a 2003 episode of The Simpsons. Uh, What is one dream of yours that you've yet to accomplish? A dream that
0: I have yet to accomplish? I'd like to write a play. I've never written a play and... I'm scared to death to try. Why? what may, scares you so much? I don't know. I took a year off to try to write a play, and I swear I didn't write one word. <laughs> I literally didn't write one word. You just I, kept saying curtain, <laughs> opens, and you're I just. At. I couldn't get it all together in my head, and I, I, I just shut down <laughs> emotionally yeah. and, and, and couldn't write anything. And I had a great idea. I had another great idea. I had an outline, and literally never wrote first scene. I, I, I just psyched myself out. But I'd like to do that at some point. Do I think, do
1: I, I mean do forty year old version the musical.
0: I'm I mean, a that, virgin. Yeah. How did this happen? It's been so long.
1: What do we do? Ouch my chest hair ripped out my body. Oh. <laughs> I dude, I mean, listen, they've you know, young Frankenstein following the history of like of like Mel Brooks, you know what I mean? And and if, listen, if you need help writing it, I'm here. Let's do it. I'm Let's here. Let's do it. All right. Nico's version of these days appears in what was one of the first scenes Wes Anderson designed for his 2001 movie, the Royal Tenenbaums as Jackson Brown described it. I forgot that I licensed them to use that song. You're sitting in a movie theater and there's this great moment when (laughs) Gwyneth Paltrow is coming out of a bus. I'm thinking to myself, I used to play a guitar just like that. And then the voice comes on and it's Nico singing these days, which I played on. All right, um, I got two two parts to this question. Uh, what scene that you've written would you like an entirely new spinoff series to be created off of?
0: What scene? I always want to do that. I, I, I try very hard to make the the supporting characters and very small parts really strong. So, you know, Jonah Hill was in The 40-Year-Old Virgin and he had the 90 seconds of screen time, but it's very memorable when he comes into the ebay store with his uh his shoes oh, it's, it's so
1: great yeah it's such an iconic scene in that movie
0: so i wouldn't mind seeing that character uh spun off you know we did a spin-off from uh, forgetting sarah marshall Brand. Uh, we get him with, to the with Greek. russell brand yeah and this is 40 is a spin-off and knocked up so i always like the idea of doing that so i don't know i wouldn't mind seeing jane lynch from the 40 year old virgin how She's Doing Now, <laughs> I, I Romany Malko in The 40-Year-Old Virgin, Mindy Kaling from The 40-Year-Old Virgin. I think most of those characters. Owen Wilson from The Cable Guy, he was the person who went on a date I just want to find out what
1: happened to the rest of the people at The Cable Guy party, the karaoke party. Exactly. That was such an interesting group of people.
0: Like... That was a troubling Roman Polanski-type uh, party. Oh, very much. It was, it was very, Ro- uh, it was very uh, Rosemary's Baby, I think, Ben was going for
1: All right, second part of this question. What has been your most surprising success?
0: Surprising success? Well, for a very long time, nothing did well. For decades, (laughs) everything was getting canceled and not opening at the box office, literally for decades. So probably the 40-year-old version doing well because Steve wasn't a big star. Not yet, yeah, but... and it was just a weird idea it came out at the end of august and it did you know really well the first weekend but then the next weekend it went up like it just which is rare for a movie up. to do well i mean with a name like
1: 40 year old
0: version it's either the best or the worst movie you've ever seen it you know it's it's all or nothing and so the idea that people just went for it and really enjoyed it and especially steve because people didn't know steve and he had played some broader characters in Anchorman and in Bruce Almighty. This was this was right when the Office was starting, and I think people realize just what a great soul he is. He's just he's so sweet and funny, yeah. and he's great going for broad stuff in the movie. But I think they they felt his heart in it, and that's why the movie did well.
1: I mean, it's a, it's a it's a it's a comedy that you could say we were talking about dick jokes earlier. I mean, it has. Uh, a plethora But there's But there's heart to it And I think With all of your films In anything Even stuff you produce It'll have There's, a, there's so much heart to it So I think people You know There probably are 40 year old versions Out there that people know Just like that guy That works oh, at the we, Best Buy store Sure and, We
0: thought about it We said let's 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 think about this In a very real way You know How would you feel What would you do You know what What's your life like And And To not look at it as a silly character, but just a, you know, a human being in, in in a tricky situation that the audience is rooting for.
1: Completely. All right. Last fact. In 1999, there was a mural painted on a building on the corner of Second Street and Kinsley Avenue in Winslow, Arizona, of a reflection in a window of a blonde woman in a bright red Ford flatbed truck looking at whoever stands there. The area was named Standin' on the corner park. On September 24th, 2016, about six months after Glen Fry passed away suddenly, a life-size bronze statue of him was added to the park to honor his songwriting contributions. To take it easy, where would a statue commemorating you be installed? And <laughs> I, didn't, and what I would, didn't
0: know where you were going. Uh, with yeah, this yeah, I know.
1: No, but also, not only where is it installed? What would you be doing in the statue? That's a very good question. I, I, what I thought,
0: honestly, what popped into my head, yeah, was I thought my st- statue would be in front of where I used to bus tables at El Torito, in 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 Saucet, Long Island. I worked at an El Torito, <laughs> and it would just be me in my outfit with my tray, you know, of uh, of chips and salsa that I'm bringing to a table. And I I always had a tag <laughs> that I had made that said my name was Lopez. Of course, and, yeah, because you
1: look like a Lopez, lopez
0: Goldensteinberg. <laughs> for some reason, Cohen's law. I think that's, that would be the statue. That's, that's the pure me. Do you ever go back to that El Torito? It's not even an El Torito anymore, and I don't know why it closed down. It was very successful, and I hate when you, you have these places in your life and then they, they're not there anymore. Yeah, I know what you mean. So uh, I'm very unhappy with the El Torito people. But if Jorge's out there, the manager who treated me well, I, I still think about you
1: sometimes. reach out. All right, uh, final thoughts on the record, Judd. Go ahead. Uh, it was
0: so much fun listening to the record again and uh, listening to it with you. I think it's fantastic. I, I just thank Jackson Brown for making it because I, I literally have spent hundreds of hours listening to this record. And in addition to being a, a brilliant artist, knowing him a teeny bit, he really is a fantastic kind of person yeah i've gotten to see him perform at largo with different people uh, in a lot of different situations and he's just the best and it was a pleasure to get to to talk about him and i hope we have given him the proper respect
1: which is he is due he, he is due and i think we did uh john this was fantastic thank you so much for taking time out uh to sit down and talk to me bud thank you Judd Apatow, ladies and gentlemen. God, that was fun. Judd Apatow has a new book coming out, guys. It's Gary Shandling's book. It comes out November 12th. An intimate look into the man Gary Shandling using all of Gary's writings. It's incredible. Pre-order it on Amazon or BarnesandNoble.com and watch The Great Depression by Gary Gullman on HBO. And you can follow Judd on all social media. At Judd Apatow. I'm going to be posting Judd's Spotify mixtape. We're going to set up our own 500-specific Twitter and Instagram account. So hopefully all that, and that's going to be an easier way to get all the 500 goodies straight to you. Not through me, because I'm terrible at posting. But for all things 500, if you want to dig into that kind of stuff, go to our website, the500podcast.com. That's where we'll have his mixtape, for sure, as well as everybody's mixtapes. Email the podcast at 500 podcast at gmail.com and follow me at Myers on all social media. Please subscribe to The 500 on Spotify or any place that you listen to podcasts. But one thing's for sure, if you listen to it on Apple, please leave a review. Leave a review because we love that stuff. Now, we just listened to Jackson Brown from 1973. Now here for new music this week, Matt Pinfield, our music director, selected Jason Isbell. Jason Isbell is a singer-songwriter from Alabama who was a member of the Drive-By Truckers before he decided to break out on his own. Break out on his own. It's my Maryland accent. He decided to break out on his own. His love for everyone from John Prine to Jackson Brown showcases his introspective songwriting. If We Were Vampires, it's probably his most loved song and a great place to start with this exceptional artist. Listen to the song on Spotify, and you can check out the link on our website, the500podcast.com. And if you're in a band and you were directly influenced by one of these albums or artists and you want your music featured on the 500 website, send your song to 500podcast at gmail.com. And make sure you put the album and artist that influenced you in the subject line. Next week is Big Star Week with their 1978 album, Third Slash Sister Lovers. I call it Third. You got some homework to do. Listen to the album on Spotify. Stay fleecy. Porn, Satan, drugs, therapy.
0: It's not just the list of what I'm up to this weekend.